0: Diana, she's 36 and has been dealing with IBS-type symptoms for years. She has gas and bloating, irregular bowel movements where she fluctuates between diarrhea and constipation, and often just doesn't feel like her stomach is settled. Over the years, she saw different gastroenterologists and had multiple endoscopies and colonoscopies that showed that there was inflammation, but she was never given a specific cause. She tried removing dairy and gas-producing foods like broccoli and cauliflower per her doctor's recommendation, but that didn't do very much. She also had a blood test where the doctor looked at celiac disease, but those markers were negative, so gluten was not an issue for her. When I met Diana, I saw that the blood work she had was fairly basic, and many areas of food allergies and sensitivities were not assessed. I knew we had to dig deeper to find the missing pieces to solve this health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Diana, who was very perplexed by why her stomach never felt good. Joining me on the show today to talk more about Diana's case is Dr. Peter Osborne. Dr. Osborne is the clinical director of Origins Healthcare in Sugarland, Texas. He is world renowned in the fields of gluten and grain sensitivity and one of the most sought after functional medicine doctors in the country. He's the author of the highly acclaimed bestseller, No Grain, No Pain. Dr. Osborne is a doctor of chiropractic, board certified in clinical nutrition, pastoral medicine, and an advisor for the Functional Medicine University. He is passionate about educating patients and health professionals on healing through root cause resolution, which is something I'm very passionate about as well. Dr. Osborne, welcome.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for being here. Now, Dr. Osborne, many of my listeners have heard me say that certain foods do not work for certain people. And if you're not able to tolerate that food, you may have various reactions and symptoms because of it. However, when it comes to gluten, people are very confused because there's so many different types of tests and ways to look at it. And I often find myself spending a good amount of time really explaining all of that. There's so many terms that people use when they talk about not being able to tolerate gluten. And the terms are often used interchangeably, which is not always really correct. So can you explain to us what is the difference between celiac disease and a gluten intolerance versus say something like a gluten sensitivity or a gluten allergy?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, Unfortunately, you're right. There are um, too many people using all of those terms interchangeably or synonymously. Let's just start with gluten sensitivity. Gluten sensitivity is basically it is a state of genetics. It is not a disease. A lot of people think it's a disease or an illness. It is not. You either have genes that when they are exposed to glutens create an immune or inflammatory response or you don't. So, gluten sensitivity is a state of genetics. And this is one of the reasons why it's very important if you're trying to figure out whether or not gluten is an issue for you that you get genetically tested. Then there's the term celiac disease. Celiac disease is a manifestation of gluten sensitivity. So, if we go back and and say, okay, the definition of gluten sensitivity is that if you have gluten sensitive genes and you get exposure to gluten, you're going to have an inflammatory reaction to that gluten. The outcome of that inflammatory reaction for some is the development of celiac disease. Celiac disease is an autoimmune disease of the small intestine causing severe malabsorption problems and gastrointestinal inflammation. So it's important to understand that everyone with celiac disease is gluten sensitive, but not everyone with gluten sensitivity will develop celiac disease. Now then there's the term intolerance. An intolerance, by definition, means that a person would eat a food and they don't have the capacity to digest it. So they don't have the enzymatic capacity to break that food down. An enzyme is a protein-based chemical that helps your body digest your foods. Much Most people have heard of dairy intolerance or lactose intolerance. And and it's the same analogy here, gluten intolerance is when a person eats gluten but they don't have the enzyme to break it down and that can create irritable bowel, gas and bloating, intestinal discomfort, but it doesn't necessarily create wide spectrum autoimmune problems like celiac disease. So an intolerance in a nutshell is the inability to digest. Then we have allergy and an allergy classically defined is an acute response to a food or food protein that leads to symptoms like hives, lips swelling, throat constricting, You know the classic peanut allergy or shellfish allergy. Somebody gets exposure, their face swells, they end up in the ER room getting an EpiPen put in their heart because they're in anaphylaxis. Like a true allergy is a very, very quick, acute onset, potentially life-threatening response. And that's actually quite rare. Most people don't have an acute allergic reaction to gluten or even to grains. Although it can be common to have a wheat allergy, most people don't have an anaphylactic response to that. And so if somebody's saying you're not gluten allergic, they're they're probably using that term wrong because, because what they are probably referring to is gluten sensitivity in their own head. So again, a sensitivity is a state of genetics where if you have the genes for gluten sensitivity, it means that when you get exposure, you're going to create an inflammatory response that over time builds and accumulates and can lead to a deterioration in your health. One of those manifestations is celiac disease, but there are a hundred forms of autoimmune disease that gluten has been linked to contributing to. And celiac is just one of them. Intolerance is inability to digest and allergy is an acute life threatening immune response that leads to swollen lips, swollen face, constricted throat, hives on the skin.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for explaining that. That makes it really easy to understand. And in Diana's case, she was tested for just a few blood markers and was told she does not have celiac disease and that gluten is really not an issue for her. And obviously what you're explaining, what you're saying is just because someone doesn't have those markers doesn't mean that they don't have the genetics. And I love what you're saying that sensitivity is a state of genetics, just because I don't think people often think of it in that way.
1: Right. And the markers just test for celiac disease. So, but they don't even really accurately assess celiac disease. That's one of the other problems with markers. So in this case, if she were, if she were tested for celiac markers, even if that came back negative, it's still not accurate to say that she doesn't have celiac disease because there are other tests that need to be done to rule it out.
0: Right. So in terms of testing for food reactions, so her doctor told her that she didn't have to worry about gluten because it didn't seem like it was her issue. But obviously she was having continued digestive problems and knew that something was going on. And if we want to test for food sensitivities, and there's so many different tests Out there looking at uh, reactions in the IgA or the IgG pathway. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that could be misleading if you're not looking at genetics?
1: Absolutely. So a lot of those tests are misleading because number one, we make friendly antibodies. Just seeing an antibody doesn't make it an enemy. doesn't mean that we're reacting to something. You can actually make friendly antibodies. And most of those IgA, IgG tests do not differentiate friendly antibodies from non-friendly antibodies. So that's one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is we make five different kinds of antibodies, IgE, IgA, IgM, IgD, and IgG. And if you're just testing one or two of those antibodies, that can be misleading because it's not comprehensive. Number three, there are other immune responses beyond an antibody response that can indicate a food reaction. There are responses called immune complex responses. There are other responses called T-cell reactions or T-cell responses. And so most doctors aren't measuring those either. So, you know, all in all, as far as we know in science today, there are at least seven different forms of immune responses that we can have to food. And if you're going to your doctor and you're having one or two of those ways tested for, you're not being comprehensive and really overturning all the stones as to what you might be reactive to. And so it can be very misleading. And what happens for a lot of people is they will avoid certain things on that type of allergy test, but it won't be enough. They won't, it won't be enough because there are other things that got missed, or they'll be avoiding more than what they need to avoid because depending on which test their doctor used, some of those tests come back with a lot of false positives because they don't differentiate friendly antibodies from enemy antibodies.
0: Are there any tests that you know of that can differentiate that?
1: There are several and that's just it. It's not one test. In order to accurately assess for food responses in individuals, there are several different labs and several different tests that have to be used in conjunction with each other. Right.
0: Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting also is you're talking about having extra foods that may not be an issue and then by the same token it can go the other way too right where people test it and they're just not reactive on that pathway and then it'll appear negative where maybe if they tested a different pathway it would be positive so that's also very confusing
1: yeah I mean absolutely we want clarity when it comes to food because it's already hard enough for many people to restrict food from their diets but if you have them being overly restricted and they're not getting better and they're just frustrated, then they're going to quit. And if you have them under-restricted, and they're not getting better, they're also getting frustrated, and they're going to quit.
0: Now, what about leaky gut? How does that play a role? Do you feel like people will have more antibody responses when they have leaky gut?
1: It's possible. I mean, intestinal permeability or leaky gut can absolutely contribute to an increased level of food reactivity over time. And a lot of people with chronic gut problems have more allergies or, or have more allergens showing up on tests like these because of that permeable gut lining so that you know some people will argue we'll fix the leaky gut and don't worry about the food allergies and the catch-22 there is you can't fix the leaky gut without addressing the food allergies because once the gut's leaking the food allergies are overexciting the immune system the reaction is perpetual it's kind of like once you pop the tire with the nail you can pull the nail out of the tire but the tire is still popped and there still has to be work done to fix that popped tire. It's the same thing with food allergens and leaky gut. You can try to fix a leaky gut by removing what originally caused it. So for many, that, that original cause of leaky gut is gluten. For some, it's antibiotics. For some, it's other medications. And, uh, and you can remove those medications. But once that leak is there, and then they've developed allergies as a result of that leak until you actually fully address those other allergies simultaneously, the leak continues to go on perpetually. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Now, for those that really want to get to the bottom and find out if gluten is really an issue for them. And obviously, as you're explaining, there's a lot of issues with some of these other tests. Tell us more about genetic testing and how that's different and how that could be beneficial.
1: Well, so again, going back to the the definitional clarity that, that we defined earlier in the show, to truly know about gluten sensitivity, you have to have genetic markers looked at because there are two genetic markers that we analyze. And, and the reason why we look at, at these particular genetic markers, they're called HLA-DQ markers, is because they these two genes are responsible for producing an antenna that sits on the surface of people's immune cells. And this antenna's job is to recognize good things from bad things. That's what its job is. And so it helps the body differentiate good from bad. And so people with certain patterns on that HLA-DQ gene sequence will look at glutens as an enemy and not as a friend. And so we want to know whether or not a person is doing that. So that's why we look at those genetic markers to just help to discern whether or not taking gluten out of that person's diet is the right move.
0: And how is this genetic test performed?
1: It's, It's pretty easy. It's a cheek swab. So it's just a matter of putting a Q-tip in the mouth and taking what are called buccal samples from from either cheeks.
0: Mm -hmm. And I know that your test looks at a few other markers than other traditional genetic tests look at, uh, things that, you know, LabCorp or other labs like that can see. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah. So most labs will only measure what are called HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8 genes. And these genes are celiac-linked genes. But there are other gene markers that are non-celiac gluten sensitivity gene markers. And so our testing looks at the array of all of those, not just a limited quantity. So what happens for many people is they get a genetic test where if they don't have a a celiac pattern, they're being told, don't worry about it. But there's a whole huge part of the population that has non-celiac gene markers that are still gluten sensitivity patterns. And, and that's what gets missed on a lot of these traditional labs. So we go into depth and analyze the difference.
0: And then when you get results for someone, is it that any positive means they need to stay away from gluten or does it have to be a combination of certain ones?
1: No, it, it, it generally speaking, what we recommend is if people get genetically tested and they have two or more positive genetic alleles, Um, And so so there when when we're doing this test, we're measuring four different alleles. Uh, If they have two or more positive, then going gluten free is probably the best move that they can make for the continuance of their health. If they have one or less, then it's 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 a little bit more questionable. One, if they only have one, but they have the presence of autoimmune disease, we recommend that they they look at going gluten free. If they have none, of course, we don't recommend a gluten-free diet for that individual, but we do recommend that they look at the quality of the food that they're eating. So, For example, a person could not be gluten-sensitive, but eat a grain, and because that grain could have mold in it or mycotoxins in it or that grain could have Mm -hmm. a, a problem with pesticide because it was genetically manipulated, now they're sick for a different reason so some people react to gluten and some people react to some of the other components in grain and that's why i wrote no grain no pain i was trying to give people an idea for delineating those differences
0: mhm yeah and there's so many things i mean even the glyphosate that's sprayed on the grains there's so many other things that can affect that that's a great point And also what you were talking about with the different genes that are coming up for me personally, I had two copies of one of the DQA alleles and I didn't have any other food sensitivity markers, but I have Hashimoto's. So for me, it was the genetics and having autoimmunity. And when I got both of those results, which was over 10 years ago now, I've been staying away from gluten and it's worked really, really well for me. Uh, Dr. Osborne, I know that you've tested thousands of people and um, you have records on them, but also in general, do you know how common this gluten sensitivity in terms of genetics is?
1: It's estimated 30 to 40 percent of people are positive genetically for gluten sensitivity. I don't know that we could truly answer that question, though, because without absolutely genetically testing everyone, you know, it's it's it's. Large part, it's guesswork, but it's an estimated 30 to
0: 40%. Yeah, which, yeah, and of course, then we can't test everyone, but you know, 30 to 40% is a really high amount. I mean, even if it was more like 25 to 30, right, if we scale it down a little bit, that's still a huge percentage of the population. So I just think it's so helpful that people look at this and see if it's something that's an issue for them, you know, in terms of how they feel now, but also what can lead from this in the future in terms of autoimmunity and other immune challenges. Now, Dr. Osborne, if someone has the genetics, does that mean that they should stay away from gluten indefinitely or is there any way that it can maybe somehow be reversed?
1: You know, I, my advice really is that they stay away from it indefinitely, kind of like a diabetic. If a diabetic becomes diabetic because they don't exercise and they eat poorly and over consume carbohydrate, and then they stop doing that, and they reverse their diabetes. Do they then start eating sugar and stop exercising? Mm-hmm. Right. So we don't yeah. want to do the thing that creates the illness once the illness is gone. We want to have a persistent behavior that led to a resolution and led to complete health, as opposed to get healthy and then do things that are unhealthy again. Because you know we can predict that outcome pretty much 100 percent of the time. When you do unhealthy things for you, you're going to end up unhealthy.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, Dr. Osborne, this is so helpful. Thank you so much for sharing all of this information with us. I so appreciate you being here.
1: Well, you're very welcome. I was glad to come on and and help uh, uh, illuminate information about gluten sensitivity.
0: As we just heard, gluten sensitivity is a state of genetics. And while many tests exist, most of them fall short on getting to the root. I'll tell you more about what we did for Diana in just a second. But first, if you want to contact or find out more about my guest, Dr. Peter Osborne, please visit healthmysterysoft.com and go to episode number nine. There you'll find all the detailed show notes so you could reference everything we talked about and all the links to the resources Dr. Osborne and I discussed. Now back to Diana. She was tested for just a few antibodies in blood, which didn't show anything. But as you just heard, that was very basic and doesn't account for everything. So we explored it further. Diana really wanted to find out if this was an issue and didn't want to just eliminate gluten without seeing something on her tests, which I can totally understand. So to make sure we covered all the bases, we ran two panels. We did the genetic test looking at her DQ2 and DQ8 genes and a wheat zoomer panel. She was positive for one allele on the DQ2 and one on the DQ8, which showed that her body was not genetically equipped to process gluten. So we already had our answer. But additionally, we got the results of the wheat zoomer. This test looks at not only wheat as a whole, but also its many breakdown products. So oftentimes we may not react to the wheat, but as we break it down in our digestive system, we can react to those different breakdown products. This test looks at 20 different breakdown products on two main pathways, the IgG and the IgA. Diana was sensitive to more than half of them. It was definitely an issue for her and I'll post a link to both of the tests in the show notes so you guys can see. Now, for those that may not be familiar, gluten is found in wheat, rye, barley, and oats, and many people have this sensitivity. As Dr. Osborne was explaining, there's so many pathways that we can react on, it really can be quite confusing. So if you have trouble with gluten and are interested in finding out, running the genetic test on the Wheat Zoomer is, in my opinion, the best way to find out. However, If you didn't want to spend the money on testing, you can also try experimenting by cutting gluten out of your diet to see how you feel. If you try this, it takes at least three weeks to see a difference and for some people, wheat may be slow to leave the body and they may not see a difference for a few months to know for sure. Now, aside from saving money, another advantage of doing a food trial is seeing if you have a glyphosate reaction. Glyphosate is an active ingredient in Roundup and it's actually sprayed on wheat before harvest. So people can react to that, and that is what can make them feel bad when they eat wheat. And unfortunately, this would not show up in a genetic or food sensitivity test, and you would be able to see that if you do a food trial. People also ask me if there are enzymes or other products that they could take to help them eat wheat if they don't tolerate it. And while it does seem like a good idea, unfortunately, it doesn't really work. The enzymes used to digest wheat are meant for those with celiac and gluten sensitivities to use when they're going out to eat, just in case there's tiny, tiny little bits of cross-contamination. So they would not work if you tried to take them and say, eat pizza. Sorry guys. The only way to really feel better if you do in fact have issues with gluten is to avoid it. If Diana sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. When it comes to solving your health issues, don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week on Health Mystery Solved.
1: All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.